And then thirdly here, as Jesus begins his ministry, as the king enters into public ministry, he is commended. The king is baptized, humbly coming into identification with his people in the baptism of John. He is anointed, receiving his anointing as the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet also coming underneath the direction and guidance and counsel of the Spirit. And now he is commended. And even here, we see or are reminded of his great humility. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. So he enters into baptism to accomplish this. Not to make him righteous or to admit that he had not been righteous up to that point, but for the purpose of demonstrating his righteousness, that he was free from sin and was being obedient to the Father and following his will. This is the reason that he partook of John's baptism. And when John hears this, he instantly changes his mind. Now with the Pharisees and Sadducees, we're not recorded that they said anything to him, and yet he never changed his mind. You brutal vipers, you may not come. With Jesus, instantly he changes. And this again shows the righteousness of John, that he was part of the fulfilling of all righteousness, and by the Lord's grace, he was willing to obey in the circumstance, because he could have continued to say, no, I'm not going to be responsible for making you look like you're a sinner by dunking you in the water, by immersing you so that you will seem to be unrighteous. But no, Jesus explains to him that this is necessary, and says, then he permitted it. The next thing that he did, he allowed this to be the case, and he takes Jesus under the water. He immerses him in the process of baptism. That's number five there, the process. He then, he permitted him. The Really the humility here of John, to come underneath the Son of God, to say, I will obey what you say, even though it seems, it seems uncomprehensible to me that I would baptize you, yet you have commanded me to do it, and I will partake of this with you. Again, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a joy if this is how we responded to Jesus at all times? In order to fulfill all righteousness, we do what he says, even when it does not to us seem to make all the sense that it should. But it seems strange to us that we would do these things. Yet, obedience is what John, the greatest of men born of women, accomplishes when it comes to obeying the Lord. So he enters into his public ministry. His first public act is an act of supreme humility. Being baptized, yes, identified with sinful men, but then being baptized by one who was not worthy to even unlace his sindal. The greatest of men, and yet, as you and I, entirely unworthy to baptize him in any way. Yet Jesus submits himself like this as he begins. He's already shown his condensation uh, in in coming, not condensation, but condescension. In coming, it's not rain that comes upon the earth. He, he has already shown his humility by being born in the ultimate of humility. Now in everything that he does, every process he undergoes, he continues to demonstrate this humility. Let's look at the next thing that the king does. First, the king is baptized as he enters into his public ministry, but also the king is anointed. The king is anointed in verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, 
and the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. First is the, the timing of this anointing. So the king here is anointed. First he's baptized, now he's anointed for ministry. The timing of the anointing is immediately after he comes up out of the water. Now this could indicate that he's coming up from his immersion and immediately it happens there as he's standing in the river. It could also indicate that it's as he comes up out of the river. I think either way, immersion is implied. He went down under the water, that he came up, and either right at that moment the Spirit of God comes or as he steps up out of the river, not having stood on the bank, but having come into it, that as he comes out of the water, then the Spirit of God comes upon him. So that's the timing, the origin of the anointing. It says, and the heavens were opened. Now, heavens are used in, in various ways in Scripture. It can just simply be the, the earthly heavens, or it can be heaven, the dwelling place of God. And I think that's the issue here. It isn't simply that the sky parted or that, or that the clouds you know, moved away, that there was a, a view into heaven at this point, much like in Acts 7.56, after the stoning of Stephen, as he's uh, about to die, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'm getting a glimpse into the throne room of God himself. The spiritual realities that are not viewed by our human eyes are shown at this moment as Jesus receives the anointing, beginning his ministry. Heaven is bearing witness to the ministry of Christ. In humility, he is baptized. And as we will see, in humility, he is anointed. Now, the spirit of the anointing, we'll discuss next. So the origin is the heavens. The heavens are open and the dwelling place of God is from where the spirit comes. So the spirit of the anointing, first the descent of the spirit, and this has has generated maybe more discussion than much else in this passage, in some ways, unfortunately. It says, the Spirit of God descending as a dove. So the descent of the Spirit, he's coming down, all right, and he's coming from heaven. That's the implication. And then the form of the Spirit, what form did he take? The visible form seems to be necessary, again, to so that everyone can recognize and realize that this is the anointed one, and we see the anointing of the Spirit, much like at, on the day of Pentecost, we have the, the tongues of uh, as of fire that are over the apostles as the Spirit is given at that time. Well, here there's a visible representation of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a dove. Right? It says the Spirit as a dove. However, I don't think that refers just to the, the way the Spirit came down, perhaps fluttering like a bird or other things. It does appear that he took on for this purpose, to go from heaven to earth as it were, that he took on the form, the bodily form of a dove, because that's what Luke 3.21 says. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. So if you had been there looking, you would have seen a dove. That seems to be the implication of Scripture. Now the question comes, and here's where all of the material has been written, why did he appear bodily as a dove? And the answer is, I'll I'll just give you a one-sentence answer, I don't know. Now, I know the preacher is not supposed to say that. I've said that to you several times. You're like, should we keep having you be the preacher? You don't know all these things. I don't think anybody knows this. I mean, you can look in Scripture to try to find things about, there's almost nothing. For example, William Hendrickson says, well, this means that the Holy Spirit was coming down with the form of purity, graciousness, and gentleness. Really, I mean, Dove does, it only represents those things in kind of our own minds. Scripture doesn't give any attestation to that. Well, John MacArthur says, well, maybe the Spirit is pictured in the, in the Old Testament at creation, like he's hovering over creation like a bird, maybe a dove. There's no dove mentioned anywhere in those places. So I'm not going to spend any more time on it. I don't know. We have associated dove then with graciousness and gentleness and compassion. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came that way. It's a backwards form of, of interpretation. We're not going to interpret what we think of the Spirit of God back into why he came as a dove. So I don't know. He chose that form. 
and he's given us much, many pictures that we can now represent him with. The dove, I guess. But nonetheless, he comes visibly. The, the greater importance is that he comes visibly to demonstrate there's a real anointing happening by the Spirit of God. And what's most important, of course, is the significance of his being anointed with the Spirit. It says, and, and, and lighting on him. That is, he landed. That's, again, why I think there's, you have the bodily form of a dove. He landed on him and remained on him. Right, but not always as a dove. Then again, that's the picture of the Spirit coming to anoint the Son of God, the God-man. Several reasons, several significances, I believe, to this. First, you have the pouring out of the Spirit as the primary sign that the blessings of the new of the new covenant have come. Along with that, it was predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the anointed one, the one who receives the anointing, and that anointing is the Spirit of God. Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant, whom, I'm, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice in the nations. My servant being the prediction of the coming Messiah. And here he is predicted that he will receive the anointing of the spirit. Isaiah 61.1, here's the servant speaking himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. So there is the, there is the outpouring of the Spirit. There's the anointing of the Messiah as predicted in the Old Testament. But I think there is one more, certainly one more thing going on here. And that this is the anointing of the God-man for the strength and empowerment that he will need for his ministry. When he was a man... Jesus, says John MacArthur, Jesus did not lose his divinity. He was still fully God in every way. In his deity, he needed nothing. But in his humanity, he was here being anointed for service and granted strength for ministry. The Spirit anoints him for the kingly service that he will undergo. And this also is indicated in the Old Testament in Isaiah 11, verse 2. Why would the Spirit of God come upon the man who is already God? Why would he need more strength? Because he is the son of God himself. The indication from scripture and from the, the nature of Jesus, the fact that those two natures in him were not commingled, right, but they were fully existent at all times in Jesus without commingling, is that as a man, Jesus lived his life in the power of the spirit, as we are called to do. Yes, as the perfect God man, but he lived that out as we are called. Isaiah 11, 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Again, this is the Messiah, the servant, the coming one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus, as the God-man, and in his human nature, was in need of a fear of the Lord, in need of counsel and strength, in need of wisdom and understanding. And this is what the Spirit of God provided for him. Now, there's much there. And if you want to flesh that out a little bit more, there's a, a book by Bruce Ware about the humanity of Jesus that I think starts to get at a lot of these things. It would be encouraging to you to read, although not an easy read. And he came a year ago and, and discussed some of those things with us. But I think we will see as we begin Matthew chapter 4, I'll just give you a little preview. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. As he starts his ministry, hear this carefully. He is condescending again. And he is condescending as it were. He is the Son of God. He is the perfect second member of the Trinity, holy God and fully man as well. And he condescends to be led by the Spirit. As we are called to do. He joins us in identification, not only in baptism, but also in anointing in this sense. He too will follow the Spirit. He too will submit to the Spirit's lead through the truth of the Word of God as he works within his heart. What an amazing thought. That he will... That he will 
lower himself in this way. And that he will be led by the Spirit. He will partake of the power of the Spirit so that he again might live the life that we could not. And he might truly identify with us and taking hold of the anointing of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And then thirdly here, as Jesus begins his ministry, as the king enters into public ministry, he is commended. The king is baptized, humbly coming into identification with his people in the baptism of John. He is anointed, receiving his anointing as the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet also coming underneath the direction and guidance and counsel of the Spirit. And now he is commended. And even here we see or are reminded of his great humility, of the great steps that he took to go from heaven to earth because he is commended by the Father. The content or the origin of this commendation, it says, and behold, a voice out of heaven said. Right? And it doesn't tell us here who it is. A voice out of the heavens said, and yet our understanding that this is, we're, we're being introduced to that this is coming from heaven itself, the dwelling place of God This is God the Father speaking. He is speaking about His beloved Son. And He takes time here at the beginning of the ministry to anoint with the Spirit and to give His commendation of the ministry of Jesus. And He says two things, the content of this commendation. First, He says, this is my beloved Son. This is, of course, why we know this is the Father. This is my beloved Son, the Son of my love. The testimony of God the Father concerning the greatness of His love towards the Son. Jesus is the Father's beloved above all those he loves. The beloved apart from whom no one else could ever be loved. Only in his Son could the Father ever be fully well pleased. And and lest we confuse or conflate all of the loves of God together in one sense, we must not, we cannot. There are varying degrees in the love of God and the highest degree of God's love is found for His Son. Therefore, the only way in which we can be truly and fully loved by God in the most effective and powerful way is to enter into relationship with His Son. Otherwise, the love of God is in its ultimate effect not for you. That is, He loves, his, he loves the world. He came in demonstration of His love for men. But the effectiveness of that love, that is that love which saves will be found only as you enter into his son because he loves the son supremely above all things. Anyone who rejects his son and is not united with the son in his love will not receive the ultimate benefits of the love of God. Yes, some temporal benefits now. Ultimate benefits never if you are not in the son. And this is what he says. This is my beloved son. Son emphasizing again the character and nature of God. Not not that he is some kind of sub-level God, that he's some kind of created being. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is my son. This is the representation of me. This is my character, my nature made visible to you. Yes, eternally the son, always in that role, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet here, the visible son brought and, and demonstrated in his sonship through this very statement. This is my beloved son. Ephesians 1, 6 speaking of our salvation, but it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, that is why we are saved, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There is no salvation if you are not in the beloved, in the one whom God loves above all things. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In order to be loved of God, you must look like his son. 
And in the biggest sense, when you are baptized into Christ with the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of salvation, then you are seen in Christ. But then in an ongoing way, His love for you causes you, brings you to more Christ-likeness because that draws out the love of God. As you look like His Son, His love is poured out upon you. We are to be conformed to that image because the Son is the height of the Father's love. There's an additional message here, though. So it's the, this is my beloved son. And then he says, in whom I am well pleased. Again, this is a reflection of the language used in Isaiah 41. Of course, God is consistent as he speaks when he speaks in the Old Testament or new or when he speaks from heaven. Behold my servant, we already read this verse, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And so the delight of the father in the son is certainly based in his love for the Son, but I think also bound up in in this expression as Jesus begins his ministry. And really this brings us towards communion. Because I think this gives us a picture of the work of the Son in which God would be pleased. The Son is beloved of the Father and he comes to accomplish the work of the Father. And that work is the work of redemption. And so the well-pleasing Son is the one who is ultimately, whom God pleases is pleased to crush for our iniquities. And the son submits to this. It is seen at the beginning here in his ministry as he comes into baptism, as he's anointed by the Spirit, humbling himself there, and will be seen as he continues to please the Father all throughout his ministry, culminating in that final pleasing event, as it were, where he goes to the cross. I am pleased with my son, and I am pleased ultimately even to crush him unto death that I might be glorified in his death and in the salvation of the people of God. Jesus is divine son and suffering servant. God's delight in his son bears witness to the son fulfilling the work of suffering the wrath of God in the place of sinful men. And together these point to Jesus' role of the divine son and suffering servant. So as we come to communion, the questions that I would ask you to consider as Paul comes is, are you, are, are you recognizing, are you aware of the humility of the son? Are you constantly bringing that to mind that you might follow him in humble repentance and faith? And that you might come to this table acknowledging what he has done. Paul, if you'll come. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.